before, uh, just walking in, I, I'm rather regularly uh, stuck for a, a title for the evening talk. And what past events have uh, quite often uh, shown for me and maybe others of you too in your particular fields of work, if the, the, the title comes, the rest is follows right on from it. And the title or theme for the talk doesn't arise then one starts the talks, as I do now, waffling a bit and with a few background prayers. <laughs> um, but well, I do have something of a, of a theme. I um, just may speak on a personal note for a moment or two with regard to the body of the teachings and, and then weave that, weave that in. When I was first uh, introduced to the teachings, which was in 1967, and I had the opportunity to travel to uh, hitchhike on the, what was called in those days, the Overland Trail to uh, India from Europe. And it was in the course of that uh, journey, I was in my early 20s, that I first heard about the Dharma, the teachings of the, the Buddha, and some of the themes seem so immediately practical, relevant, and something which I could see for myself and my own experience without having to rely on uh, beliefs. And this I immediately appreciated. And those themes which you and I, during these days, uh, here together we have discussed with you Henrietta and I in small groups and one-to-ones those themes of uh, letting go, of renunciation, of giving up, of the relativity of I and my, of, the, of change, of impermanence in this world which we are exposed to. And those themes which were spoken about with <coughs> immense frequency two and a half thousand years ago and still for others, including myself, but were and are still resonating very strongly. And it was, and as one became more exposed to the, to the body of the teachings, as they are referred to, both the beginning, the middle, and the end of the teachings, which are so important, that in that uh, period of time one began to see that men through reading, through reflection, through the meditative activities such as we are engaged in uh, here together, that we could speak of the teachings having various depths to them. And in referring uh, in that way, sometimes we see for us that being um, mindful is helpful and it's useful and is a very beneficial practice, not only, of course, with taking care of ourselves when you and I are very unmindful in some of our activities in our life, we actually put ourselves at physical risk. And the teachings have said again and again that to be mindful is to give protection not only to the body, but what we often don't realize in being unmindful, that actually we put our emotional, our spiritual, our thought life at risk as well. So there's 
the endorsement and practice, and sometimes some people might regard the practice, the discipline, the training of mindfulness as a helpful and useful preparation for something different, for something other, not of mindfulness. And the teachings also, in a sense of preparation, have also uh, have been embodied in a way in what in the traditional classical language is, is referred to as the Eightfold Path. Right understanding, right attitude, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right meditation, right samadhi. And, the, and one has been encouraged in one's life, in the body of the teachings, to say to ourselves, let's not leave any of these stones unturned. Let's actually be quite willing and quite, in a way, direct and straightforward with each other. In when I look at my life, is there neglect of any of these eightfold factors? Do I you know, ignore or dismiss or disregard because of the interests of the ego? Do, do, are they neglected? And I think the, the, the heart of that eightfold path is nothing at all religious about it in, in our conventional um, interpretations. I think it's much more an attempt to appeal to the intelligence of a human being who wishes to live in life with a degree of clarity and harmony with life. And that, and that for some, is meant that, there's, that the Eightfold Path can be, I think, quite wisely and intelligently regarded as a, a preparation for something other. Sometimes that preparation, of course, doesn't even, and thought, doesn't actually have to enter into consciousness. It's not, in, it's not like it's an, there's an indispensable preparation. But certainly the teachings have said, and I think quite wisely, let's not neglect considerations about our livelihood about our actions in our daily life, about our attitude to circumstances, about, the, about living in a mindful and conscientious way. And th those things, in a way, we pay credit and respect, not only to ourselves as human beings on the earth, but we pay respect to other human beings and to life around. And therefore, there's an intelligence at work, a, a wisdom at work, uh, which is applicable to us in our relationship to the world that we live in. I think what has happened some, for some people is that the teachings of practice, the teachings of mindfulness training, the teachings of right livelihood and attitude, have in a way gained an exaggerated importance. That to say this is not in any way to undermine their beauty and their significance, but sometimes one feels the thought arises, and I think with any thoughtful human being, 
thought will arise, I could be better. I could develop much more understanding. I could cultivate uh, a much more uh, clear and realistic attitude to circumstances. I, I could really bring out clear and right and skillful actions uh, in my life. And I don't think any of us could ever really stop, no matter who we are, could ever really stop and in any way imply either of ourselves or of any other human being, any other human being on this earth, that she or he has, as it were, fulfilled to a, a perfection and a completion any of those elements of the Eightfold Path. We cannot find a person who lives in perfect, sustained mindfulness. We cannot find a person whose attitude to circumstances is always perfect, is always correct and not noble. We cannot find a, a person in life whose understanding in, in all the diversity of life is always present there and acts impeccably and with clear understanding in all circumstances. I cannot find a person. I have not ever met a person in my life who one could say, speak of in a kind of impeccable framework of language. That doesn't disregard the value of the Eightfold Path, but I think it has to be seen and viewed, and I think this is the teachings emphasize this, it has to be, has to be seen and viewed in human terms. Not in the terms of idealism, but in strictly human terms. And the Buddha has made this very, very beautiful and, uh, and preciously uh, explicit. He has said, he's used this phrase, to the extent necessary. Mindfulness to the extent necessary. Awareness to the extent necessary. Insight to the extent necessary. So let's say, for some, there is a preparation which takes place. It's some, for some, it appears to be a necessary preparation that one does have to explore and look into, sometimes rather individually, what the old language constructs in its language form, called the Eightfold Path, which in a way is saying all the significant um, and major areas of your and my life. Sometimes we, we look at our life and we say, as far as I can see of myself, my life is, is as much as I can, as much as my heart will allow, as much as my understanding will allow, really is in accordance and is remaining as much as possible true to those kind of principles which contribute to our welfare and the welfare of other people. We have no wish, there's no wish in one's heart to engage and inflict suffering on oneself, but equally there's no wish in one's heart to inflict suffering on anybody else. That very intention, that deep-felt wish, makes the Eightfold Path a contribution to that wish, a manifestation of it. I don't wish to bring harm into this world. I want to live a life as clearly as I can, as respectfully as I can. I don't want to increase the quota of suffering 
anywhere, to myself or to others. Then, in all of that, that world of disciplines and practices, that world of the path and the world of, as it were, bringing one's life together to be able to look at it and its relationship to the rest of life, sometimes we, we stop, as it were, in our tracks. We're not really then concerned with the Eightfold Path and cultivating and developing factors of that, though that may be important and valuable. We're just, as it were, stopping in our tracks. And sometimes when we stop in our tracks, it's as though other, we might say, we could say, deeper aspects of the teachings begin to show themselves. A deeper, another kind of awareness about life in its barest of elements which perhaps we haven't really addressed. Again, I say we don't have to address. When we talk of something other, which is, which I'll speak of in a moment or two, and yet sometimes we find in our life, through the circumstances, reflecting perhaps more than we realize. I think sometimes when you and I are quiet and we are stopping in our tracks and all sorts of varied environments and situations, sometimes some deeper feelings, deep, deeper thoughts begin to emerge about life and they actually show themselves to our consciousness. And we haven't quite comprehended or understood the significance of what we've been thinking. And we may talk about it in very general terms, but if we're quietly attentive, we actually see something very deep, incredibly deep, basic questions of our existence. They appear just more surface, more superficial, but actually very, very deep questions, deep concerns. And I think at varying levels, you and I, in our everyday life, talk about them. But perhaps we haven't realized this, the profundity of what we're talking about. Let's just take examples here to illustrate. We will say to each other, and we will say to ourselves, in a whole framework of different languages, different concepts, different tones, different methods of explaining, we will say to ourselves and to each other, the world affects me a great deal. So much of the days here, and what you have been talking about, is a more focused way of what you and I talk about every day of our life. And one of the ways we will say in our conversations with our friends and with people who we respect and have affection for, we feel close to, and others, the world really affects me. Today I saw this, I heard this, I smelt this, I tasted this, I touched this. My five sense doors, I have contact with this world which is around me. And in this dynamic, in this activity, things occurred 
which I saw, which I heard, and that really affected me in some way or other. I was really <coughs> touched by that. That really, really affected me. And sometimes we look at that with appreciation. We, we are glad we, we saw, we heard, we smelt, we tasted, we touched. We, f we feel, w we respond to that, we, we think about that, we write about it in our diaries or whatever. And sometimes we'll say, this happened to me, it was very painful, I was hurt very much, I felt really affected by that, what I saw or what I, what I heard, and I'm really struggling to get over this. And so it seems, sometimes it seems, the way we talk, we're just a response to the world. The world is so active that every moment of our waking state, it's affecting us. It could be, we suspect, affecting us when we're daydreaming, and of course it can be. When we're in our night dreams, it can be affecting us. It can be affecting us in ways which you and I don't know. We say, the world really seems to shape my life. It seems to determine my existence by what's going on around me. And sometimes you and I, we can feel to be a prisoner to the, what the world is doing to me. The way the world is affecting me. And it seems sometimes we're in tune with the world, and sometimes we're in a struggle with it. And this being in tune with, or being in a struggle with, is in a way what makes up the conversations of our daily life. It makes up our interpretation. What we talk about here, we talk about elsewhere. Sometimes, in our relationship to the world, we are, as it were, worldly forgetful. We don't make any reference to what's happening in the, through the eyes, the ears, nose, tongue, touch. No concern with it. And we have the capacity to talk to each other and think as well without any reference to what's happening in what we call the immediate present, the here and now. And we find ourselves thinking about what was or what might be. And then we say to ourselves, and I was speaking a little bit about this last night, there is my past, might be last week, last month, last year, childhood, before. There is my past, and I am because of my past. What I am is owing to my past. And sometimes we can feel a prisoner to the present. This world is shaping me, is making me who and what I am. The society, the culture, the environment, the, the values, the, the way the world works around me, the way the climate is, it affects me. Many various ways of impact. And sometimes we say, no, it's the past which does it. 
The past is making me feel like I feel, think like I think, do what I do, behave like I behave, because of this. And we talk, relate, communicate about the way the present impacts. And it seems so obvious, so clear, many of our conversations are just based on this, or we're based on the past and how the past influences, and we give shape to the present, its power, its influence, its control, its domination, its what, its pleasures, its pains, and similarly with the past. We concretize the present, we concretize the past, and we can find ourselves going back and forth between the two. Making up the view of reality. The view of the way things really are. Either the present, or the past, or sometimes both. I'm like I am in the present because of how the past has been, and that's really affecting me. I am like I am right now because the present, through my sense doors, is affecting me, and it's connecting with my stuff, my past, my history, and that's why I am like I am. So sometimes we put everything, it's because of what's out there, Sometimes we put everything, it's because of what was. And sometimes we put everything because it's a combination of these two. And our life is spent discussing this. Every conversation, if you look carefully, has this included in it. Every word that a human being has ever spoken about somehow or other embraces this dynamic of past, present, and of course the movement which says into the future. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about the future because of what's happening in the present. I'm thinking about the future because of what has happened in the past. I'm thinking about the future because of the dynamic of the present and the past. So we say one, or the other, or both. And our conversations, our language, reinforce this. We think we're touching the reality. We think we're speaking the truth. We think we know the way things are. And then sometimes it seems quite different from that altogether. Still that something other in the sense that I want to communicate. And we say, yes, but in my life I've had these experiences and those experiences don't seem to be anything like that at all. I can't say that experience is caused by what I see or hear or smell or taste or touch. That's my, what I call here and now. 
I can't say these experiences are caused by my past and events which took place in the, the past, and there is some ripening, but I have these experiences, and it seems like f fate. It seems something strange. Seems it doesn't seem to relate to my life, to my past or to my present, and it something just happened, and my consciousness was altered in, an, in a period of time. And one would have to say, yes, you and I and others have those kind of experiences which we can't fit into. It's caused by what I see, hear, smell, taste or touch. And, I, and it doesn't fit either into what has happened to me in the past as far as I know. Yet experiences I have, not of that. Could I honestly say, with wholehearted conviction, that each of my perceptions, this or that, this meaning present, that meaning past, or both or neither, that there is genuine, inherent truth residing in each one. That, that, that is the truth. I c how could I possibly say that? In all of my conversations, <laughs> all of my communications, which are dealing with past, present and future, and taking one, taking the other, taking both or neither, how can I possibly say that one of them is the truth? How can I put that out with complete conviction? Yet I talk this way, whoever I am, my whole life. Every my, all my conversations, all of my communications are all about what has happening, what is happening and what might happen. Both or neither. might show to us. We can feel this sensitively in ourselves. The sheer relativity of everything we have ever expressed in the name of reality. It might show to us the, the relativity of everything we expressed which we have implied and sometimes stated this is the truth. When we begin to sense that, I think to our mind, it brings a certain humility. It brings a certain humility that my mind, whoever the my mind might be, is only expressing a way of relating, a way of regarding, a way of interpreting, and that's its function and that's all it can do. 
It can't state the truth. So every time I refer to the past, I'm leaving out a whole vast picture. Every time I refer to the present, I'm leaving out a whole vast picture. Every time I refer to the future, I'm leaving out another whole vast picture. I cannot speak and have it all together. I cannot, there is not a word or a language or a phrase or a book or a writing, or a poem, or anything which could possibly communicate that vastness. And I am humbled by this. My mind comes quiet with this. <coughs> it's not that I have to make my mind quiet. It's not that I have to do something to get the mind quiet. It's more that I've understood something, that it's not the instrument that reveals the truth. And thus, the brain comes quiet by itself. And I know this. Because I know if I speak about the past, I'm focusing and narrowing. And life couldn't possibly be that narrow. If I'm speaking about the future, and I think that's the way it is, that's the way it will be, rather. I'm narrowing. And similarly, if I speak about the present, each time I speak about one thing, I'm narrow. I'm excluding, I'm forgetting, I'm neglecting, I'm ignoring. But my mind can't do anything else but that. The moment the thought arises, the word arises, the pen arises. How could one not feel humbled by this? How could one not feel stilled by this? And it's as though in the very, what should we say, universe of things, in the nature of things. I don't actually have to look for truth. I don't have to be a, a seeker for truth. I don't have to work for truth, to practice, to arrive at truth. Let me just know what not truth is. Let me just realize what not reality is. Let me just understand with humility, deep humility, what the movement of the mind means. Let all of that fall into place. Then the deception is gone. 
the erroneous perceptions have finished. And it's wordless. It's not of mind. It's no mind. Then we can talk wonderfully freely. We can talk of things past, we can talk of things present, we can talk of things future, carefully and conscientiously and mindfully, because one knows how human beings get caught in so much suffering with these mental constructions. But we can talk freely, but the deception has gone. One doesn't imagine for a moment that the truth resides in that movement of mind and its expression. <coughs> and the rather delightful and precious factor about that that in that <coughs> fading away of the, the deception that so easily is there with thoughts of past, present and future, with the fading away of that deception, there's also a kind of loss of self-interest. It's as though life is being lived, or life is living itself through. And one doesn't have to feel concerned with me and my mind. It's as though the mind has a innate peacefulness to it. That it's kind of taken care of. It's kind of some mis mysterious way. It's kind of looked after without any <coughs> effort on one's part. Life is just being lived out. And there's not this, this, the deceptions of the past, the present, the future. Something that we do as human beings in our mode of relating. And thus that language which we sometimes refer to as ultimacy, timelessness, immense, wonder, freedom, expansion which knows no measure. However, that sometimes that kind of language we, which we may use is so obvious. And it's available when we stop seeking after truth. When we stop looking for it. When we stop pursuing reality. And this might be referred to 
as the heart of the teachings of the Buddha, the quintessence. May all beings see into the, the body of the teachings. May all beings be aware of the diversity of the teachings. May all beings realize the end of the teachings. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.